Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read Sister Citizen by Melissa V. Harris Perry. We are on page 69, and we are starting the section entitled Mammy in chapter 2, I believe, entitled Myth. In 2008, Stephanie Tubbs Jones, the first black woman elected to Congress from Ohio, was serving her fifth term in the House of Representatives. As the representative from the 11th District, Tubbs Jones had won four re-election campaigns by large margins. In 2004, she also achieved national notoriety as a fierce advocate of voting rights. Her district encompassed much of Cleveland, the city that was the flashpoint of a voting rights controversy after the 2004 presidential election contest between John Kerry and George W. Bush. Voting Voting irregularities in Columbus and Cleveland, home to most of the state's black citizens, caused many to question the honesty of the election. Tubbs Jones led the congressional objection to certifying election results from Ohio. In 2005, she introduced the, quote, count every vote, end quote, act to address irregularities that occurred in her district and across the state of Ohio in 2004. She was also a powerful figure within the Democratic Party, serving on the House Ways and Means Committee and as a Democratic National Committee co-chair. None of this saved her from being called a, quote, hanky head, end quote, on a popular black political website during the Democratic primaries in 2008. Tubbs Jones served as the campaign co-chair for Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton during her primary battle against Senator Barack Obama. She was one of Clinton's staunchest supporters and most vocal surrogates. Her loyalty to a white woman candidate campaigning against the first black man to win the Democratic nation and Democratic nomination engendered Tubbs Jones's electoral solid solidity within her own district and hurt her national reputation among many black Americans. Excuse me. On June 3rd, 2008, the black political website Jack and Jill Politics posted an entry suggesting that Tubbs Jones should be considered, should be concerned about re-election. Quote, we have a bunch of CBC, Congressional Black Caucus, hanky heads that are scrambling for cover because they are hearing loudly from their districts. Many of them went overwhelmingly for Obama while they were toting Miss Clinton's water, end quote. The blog author called for primary challenges to a number of Congressional Black Caucus members. Topping this list was, quote, Stephanie Tubbs Jones, hanky head, end quote. By describing Tubbs Jones this way, Jack and Jill politics was invoking a common and painful image of black women, the black mammy. It is important to understand the context of this charge. Tubbs Jones was not called mammy simply because she supported Hillary Clinton. In fact, in early polls, Clinton led Obama among black voters but African-American women became solid Obama supporters after the New Hampshire and South Carolina primaries. They threw their support behind Obama after a number of troubling events in the campaign. Hillary Clinton choked up during a press interview the day before the New Hampshire primary, which she won even though Obama had led by double digits in late polling. Post-election results showed that white women voters provided Clinton's margin of victory. Many commentators suggested that Hillary's open display of emotion was the key to her win. Then in South Carolina, former President Bill Clinton compared Obama's primary bid to that of Jesse Jackson two decades earlier. 
Many analysts interpreted his comments as racially biased. This combination of events led many to believe that Hillary was using displays of emotional weakness to solicit white women's votes and that her surrogates were using racial tactics to discourage white support of Obama. In this context, Tubbs Jones's support of Hillary Clinton was seen not as just a personal political strategy, but as a deep racial betrayal deserving of the slur, quote, Mammy, end quote. After slavery ended, the myth of lachievousness, wanton, and sexual availability of... One second. Okay, sorry about that. Had a phone call. I try to usually keep these devices all on silent when I'm doing these readings, but I had one slip through. Let's pick pick back up where we left off at. After slavery ended... The myth of lascivious, wanton, and sexually available black women cannot alone support a system of domestic labor that require proximity between black women and the white families that employed them. An insatiable breeder was profitable in agricultural slavery because children born to bondswomen became the property of the enslavers, regardless of their racial composition. But after slavery's demise, the specter of racial intermixing in a context of nominal legal equality became a national anxiety. Black women who labored in white homes had to be reimagined. A seductive, exotic winch would threaten the stability of white families, but an asexual, omnicompetent, devoted servant was ideal. With the Compromise of 1877, which ended Reconstruction and withdrew federal troops from the South, white secessionists were given the power to craft segregation codes, disenfranchise black voters and revise the Confederate narrative as triumphant rather than victorious. America's newest citizens, meanwhile, were relegated to forced agricultural peonage through rural sharecropping, grinding urban poverty in the South's new cities, new forms of segregation through the imposition of Jim Crow and racial terror meted out by the Ku Klux Klan. The white Southern imagination generated myths of black manhood and womanhood that supported these segregationist policies. Mammy was a central figure in this mythmaking. Quote, African-American women as Mammy served to challenge critics who argued that slavery was harsh and demeaning. After all, Mammies were depicted as being happy and content with their duties as servants. End quote. Yeah, let's have a reflection here because this is a, a lot that we're taking in. I think. As you look back through time, as different time periods pass and there becomes a different a different different form of acceptance for uh of racism. And when I say a different form of acceptance, I, I mean that to say that at the inception of this country, racism was accepted in the form of genocide and in the form of chattel slavery. As generations passed and the partly because the the main things that they needed from that slave labor had been succeeded. And also because there became gener- as generations passed, there is a, 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 a percentage of people who desire to see a more humane society. It becomes a, a wider percentage of people desire to see things be done more humanely, which doesn't mean that they desire for an abolition of racism, but they may desire now for an abolition of slavery. So you see the end of chattel slavery, but you see black people still uh, be being second class citizens in the, in this country by not having uh, rights to vote, by not having 
any land by still being be, by having black codes and things of this nature written out for them. And then you see as when Reconstruction comes that there is, again, a different type of acceptance of the form of slavery where there were small amounts of black people who were allowed to take office. There were advances that were made where black people were allowed to get more education. And then you see once the Confederate Army pulls out, or excuse me, the Confederate Army, once the, the army, the federal government's army in the Union pulls out, uh, we're coming up here on Juneteenth, and that's what the part of what took place and the importance of Juneteenth in Galveston, Texas, is the federal, federal, the federal government, the army coming in and enforcing the ending of slavery, the ending of chattel slavery. Uh, but as you see that, as you as those troops left after those troops left the South, you see a different acceptance of form of slavery, which became essentially the Jim Crow times, which became separate but equal. Black people having to use different facilities, go to different schools, black people being relegated to second-class citizenship through laws, black people not having the right to vote, the forming of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, the not forming Ku Klux Klan, Ku Klux Klan existed, but the re-emergence of the Ku Klux Klan, the White Citizens Council, uh, the all of these different things you see take over in the nation and that becomes the accepted form of slavery and with each one of those accepted forms of slavery or excuse me that becomes the accepted form of racism i misspoke i'm sorry uh, but with each different accepted form of racism a different prejudice a different stereotype is connected to the black people in that time a different stigma a different shame is connected to the black people specifically what we're speaking about in here is the black women of that time so when slave chattel slavery is the type of form of racism that is accepted there's a specific shame and stereotype and stigma that is connected to black women who go through chattel slavery once it becomes uh, Jim Crow, there's a specific shame and stereotype and stigma that comes with that. And they those things have to exist in order to perpetuate oppression and perpetuate exploitation and perpetuate discrimination. Uh, when these things like this are occurring in our country or in any country, there's always some type of political justification or social justification that the people who perpetuate these things have. And usually... And a majority of the time, those things rely on stereotypes and shame and stigmas. And so that, that's and so as we're reading here, we see that it is as a new form of racism is being accepted. It also calls into causing to need a new form of shame and stereotype and stigma to be connected to it, to perpetuate it. Enslaved women working as domestic servants in southern plantations were taken from their families and forced to nurse white babies while their own infants subsisted on sugar water. They were not voluntary members of the enslaver's family. They were women laboring under coercion and the constant threat of physical and sexual violence. They had no enforceable authority over their white charges and could not even resist the sale and exploitation of their own children. Domestic servants often were not grandmotherly types, but teenagers or very young women. It was white supremacist imaginations that remembered these powerless, coerced slave girls as soothing, comfortable, consenting women. Unlike the bad black women who aggressively sexual, excuse me, unlike the bad black woman who was aggressively sexual, 
Mammy had no personal needs or desires. She was a trusted advisor and confidant whose skills were used exclusively in service of the white families to which she was attached. Mammy was not a protector or a defender of black children or communities. She represented a maternal ideal, but not in caring for her own children. Her love doting, advice, correction, and supervision were reserved exclusively for white women and children. Her loyal affection to white men, women, and children was entirely devoid of sexual desire. This asexuality is apparent in Mammy's androgynous embodiment. Early 20th century artwork that imagined black women as lascivious and uncontrolled represented their physical bodies as gross exaggerations of loosely connected sexual parts. These renderings highlights black women's sexuality by amplifying their breasts, hips, and buttocks. Because Mammy is docile and maternal, she is remembered as big, fat, soft, dark-skinned, and unfeminine. Nothing about the mythical Mammy elicits sexual desire from men or hints at sexual desire in Mammy herself. Mammy was key in the creation of the nation's identity as well. Although she evokes the period of slavery, Mammy becomes important as an idea in the context of freedom and the emergence of black women's citizenship. The 19th Amendment to the Constitution, giving women the right to vote, was ratified in 1920. The culmination of decades of struggle, the amendment opened the way toward full and equal political citizenship for women. Just three years later, in 1923, Mississippi Senator John Williams proposed a bill seeking a site for a national Mammy monument. The Richmond, Virginia chapter of the United Daughters of the Confederacy was prepared to fund the statue, quote, as a gift to the people of the United States, a monument in memory of the faithful colored mammies of the South, end quote. It would be placed on federal land in the shadow of the Lincoln Memorial, which had been dedicated a few months earlier in 1922. The bill passed the Senate just weeks after the same body defeated the dire anti-lynching bill. While refusing to protect African-American citizens from domestic terrorism, the Senate referred the Mammy Monument Bill to the House of Representatives, where fierce and prolonged resistance from the black press, black women's organizations, and ordinary citizens helped to kill it. Just when white women achieved the franchise and the promise of equal citizenship, a group of them sought to memorialize black women's subjugation and inequality. In supporting a federal monument to Mammy, the Daughters of the Confederacy were not seeking to honor the lives of actual black women who, in both slavery and freedom, provided domestic labor for white families. These women were vulnerable to the sexual and labor exploitation of slaveholders and household employers. They dissembled to mask their true thoughts and personalities in order to gain a modicum of security for themselves and their families. During the Civil War, they helped hide the white family's valuables on Monday, only to lead Union troops to the spoils on Tuesday. After emancipation, these women used work stoppages, strikes, carrying home extra food from employers, known as pan-toting, and various forms of indirect resistance to renegotiate their unfair, unwritten labor contracts. America was not interested in these deeply human and complicated stories of the lives of black female domestics. Instead, it seriously considered a monu 
excuse me, instead, is seriously considered a monument that would display black women as the faithful servants of white domesticity. Whenever I am in Washington, D.C., I try to imagine the psychic assault I would suffer if I had to walk past a granite Mammy statue while on the National Mall. Although Mammy was never carved in granite, she was enshrined in the American imagination throughout the first half of the 20th century. Quote, American films, pancake boxes, and syrup bottles imprinted Mammy on the American psyches more indelibly than before. End quote. As the 19th century's first certified marketing icon, Mammy became hugely influential in the 1880s and 1890s in promotional materials and advertisements that ushered in America's modern commercial age. To this day, monuments to Mammy, both large and small, remain visible in the American landscape. For example, Mammy's Cupboard is a restaurant and gift shop built inside a 28-foot-tall skirt of a black Mammy. Originally opened in 1940, it still stands on the roadside in Natchez, Mississippi, serving, quote, home-cooked, end quote, meals to Mississippi travelers. So I can think back to some of these figures of Mammy that we're speaking about. When I think about Aunt Jemima, I think about uh, someone, it's, it's another one I'm thinking, Mrs. Buttersworth. And these things are so synonymous with American culture, even when I think back to watching movies about uh, slave times or, or certain time periods, the only actors that are seen being black people who are there to help out around the house. And uh, and so the, these these images are deep in the subconscious of America and deep in the subconscious of black America as well. And a lot of times I don't think we take into consideration what these images and these stereotypes, the effect that they have on us psychologically. And I think that it was very important what Melissa V. Harris Perry pointed out about she, the, the, what type of psychological damage seeing that statue of Mammy would do to her as a black woman going through Washington, DC. And I think about the type of psychological damage that all of these different versions of Mammy that, any black woman that's been born in this country has had to had embedded on her psyche before she can even begin to form her own opinions of or her before she can even begin to form her own images and the the docile nature that is spoken about in here the asexual nature that is spoken about here you find that a lot of times with stereotypes which is stereotypes usually have hypocrisies that are built in within them. You'll have one stereotype that'll swing far to the left and another stereotype that'll swing far to the right. And again, a lot of times that'll be because of the shifting in the form of racism that is being deployed. And so as we've seen the enslaved times, it being the pendulum being far to the left of black women being too sexual and being, uh, having a, higher sexual desire and higher sexuality and uh, lewdness and lasciviousness when slavery was in, in play. So that way it justified the rape that took place. It justified the subjugation of the black women that took place. As you, you get to a 
time period in a space where, and it justified the dehumanization of the black women, you know, dehumanizing black people as a whole made it so that it led to the, led to an acceptance of, uh, of, of a raping of black women because you've already dehumanized them because you've already forced them to be looked at as property, that this is not a human being, that it's just an instrument or a tool. Then white men uh, raping them wasn't seen as the same thing as uh, raping a white woman. And it also was compounded by the fact that they would justify by the, you know, like they were enticed by the black women that it wasn't that they couldn't help but to uh, do the things that they did. But we see that as the pendulum swings to the right and now black women are voluntarily in, even though it may be a, a almost a close to a forced voluntary because they don't have any other jobs or any other employment that they can go to in a in mass as black women become part of the household and are and to the point of, working there as whether through indentured servants or, or, or eventually getting to uh, maids and things of that nature, that there was a changing of the stereotype to provide some type of comfortability and acceptance of white women to have these black women so close to their husbands and so close to their children. They couldn't allow them. The stereotype could not be one of a threatening nature uh, uh, in a sexual aspect because they didn't want to have to fear this black woman being with their husband or cheating on their, their husband, cheating on them with them. They Because this black woman, they didn't want to see her as a, a competing factor within their home. There was a, a asexualization, a domestic, a, uh, a a domestic docile excuse me a docile uh stereotype that was born that made black women be non-threatening for the comfortability of white women and and though the and as you see the pendulum swing on both of these stereotypes the understanding is that it is not just the imagery that comes with the stereotype that is damning but is the purpose that that imagery is being uh, employed for that is damning. I think that that's what we have to get to, that it's not damning to come off as asexual or to come off as uh, docile or to come off as non-threatening, the same way that it's not a negative thing to come off as threatening or to come off as uh, as sexually empowering. But it is the stereo, it is the stigma that becomes attached to this person's actions that is damning, especially when that stigma stigma is being attached for political reasons and political motives. Uh, and so I hope that makes sense. It's the difference between a black person smoking weed because they enjoy smoking weed and they like smoking weed and the stereotype of black, of that same black man smoking weed because he because just because he's black and he smokes weed or because and then because he's black and he smokes weed, that makes him lazy or because he's black and he smoke weed. It means he's more likely to do crimes or because he's black and he smokes weed. It means uh, he's more likely to be violent, you see. And so that is what happens when the stereotype and the stigmatization and the shame uh, becomes. Interwoven with some of. Some of the things we're talking about here. Okay, so I think I, on that last part, I sort of I sort of lost myself. But all right, so let's keep on going. Mammy was much more than a packaging technique. She was also a political icon who played a central role in reunifying the nations in the aftermath of the Civil War. 
by representing the notion that black women's domestic labor is a natural extension of their skills and desires, she simultaneously justified past enslavement and continuing oppression. Quote, a closer look at how the mammy stereotype was manipulated reveals that she was both a huckster and a messenger. Because she was a survivor from the Old South, her continued service to a white mistress, now her northern employer, was a reunifying gesture toward North-South reconciliation, end quote. The life of Hattie McDaniel was a striking allegory for the mythical Mammy. McDaniel was the first African-American woman to win an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress in 1939 for her performance as Mammy in Gone with the Wind. McDaniel's story is a complex mixture of ambition, compromise, resistance, rejection, and success. Whoever she really was, it was her embodiment of Mammy that won her national acclaim, praise, and validation. But McDaniels' story must be seen alongside her father's. In the Civil War, Henry McDaniel was a soldier in the Union Army who was shot in the jaw during an intense battle in which his black regiment suffered severe losses at the hands of the Confederacy. McDaniels' biographer describes her father's lifelong battle to receive a pension, medical treatment, and recognition from the government for which he fought. Like many other black Union soldiers, he was consistently denied benefits of services from his country. The contrast between the nation's embrace of Hattie McDaniel's mythical service as Mammy and its rejection of Henry McDaniel's actual service as a soldier is a striking metaphor for the racialized and gendered expectations of citizenship. Mammy is a symptomatic of consistent and repeated misrecognition. Rather than seeing black female domestic workers accurately as laborers, the Mammy myth portrays them as unwavering in their commitment to the white domestic sphere. In this role, Mammy serves to stabilize the racial and gender order, and therefore the order of the state. By misogynist white supremacist definitions, Mammy is to be hailed as a patriot. By enjoying her servitude, she acts as a healing salve for a nation ruptured by the sins of racism. Quote, Seeing the former slave woman visually transformed into a contented servant absolved everyone of past transgressions and future responsibility toward the free people. End quote. Mammy is the figure of acceptable black womanhood. Quote, loyal, docile, but fiercely protective of her white folks. She exalted in her servitude. End quote. When flesh and blood black women working as domestic laborers failed to live up to this devoted stereotype, the state asserted that they needed to be retrained to fit the myth. In the early 20th century, a land grant from the city of Athens, Georgia, and investments from private interests throughout the South established the Black Mammy Memorial Institute. The institute sought to restrain Southern Blacks to be dutiful, loyal domestic servants. The resurgence of Mammy symbolism in the early 20th century was an attempt to superimpose romantic notions of Southern paternalism on contemporary contractual labor relations. 20th century laboring women needed contracts to protect them from oppressive working conditions and to ensure fair payment of wages that supported their own black families. Mammy, by contrast, needed no employment contract because she was tied to her white family by duty, gratitude, and love. The Black Mammy Memorial Institute, backed with resources from the state and private investors, represents the dependence of white supremacy on black women's faithful service and white households. 
Although no contemporary institutions boldly assert the need to retrain black women as mammies, popular culture has recreated her in a new, more palatable version. In American popular culture, black women often appear among white women as magical figures. These modern mammies, like their 19th century counterparts, are capable of solving white women's personal crises without ever hinting at the depth of their own oppressive circumstances. For example, the modern mammy made several guest appearances on the wildly popular HBO series Sex in the City. Though Though living in New York City, the lead characters, four white women, rarely encountered black women. The few African-American women written into the script appear briefly with little character development and were often capable of magically comforting the white women and solving their problems. A black woman chauffeur takes Carrie Bradshaw out for a midnight meal after her book party. Her presence immediately soothes Carrie, who has reported in an earlier scene that her, quote, loneliness is palpable, end quote. After Miranda becomes a single mother and has trouble quieting her colicky baby, the Emmy-winning actress Lisa Gay Hamilton shows up as a neighbor, never seen before or after, to assist her. She brings a vibrating chair that immediately quiets the infant, reinforcing the notion that black women instinctively understand child-rearing in ways that white women do not. When the first film version of Sex in the City hit theaters in the summer of 2008, Academy Award-winning actress Jennifer Hudson was cast as Carrie's feisty young assistant. Although her movie role is much more significant than the sister cameos in the series, Hudson's, quote, Louise, end quote, is able to fix her boss's love life, website, and personal files, even though she is two decades younger. These updates of the Mammy caricature are hardly limited to sex in the city. Contemporary popular culture is replete with black women characters with an instinctive ability to, quote, help whites get in touch with their better selves, end quote. And we are going to end this episode there. I want to say this, this, and this is not necessarily directly connected to the theme of this, of these passages, but it is connected to the overall issue at hand, which is racial injustice. And Memorial Day just passed here in Rockford, Illinois. And uh, as Memorial Day was going on, I went out and I, the, as part of the May 30th Alliance, protested the police who were a part of the Memorial Day parade, the police who just two days prior had shot somebody. And though I was not there to specifically protest the concept of Memorial Day, uh, I was there to protest the concepts of racial injustice and, uh, and police terrorism and mass incarceration. And all of those things have implications to the some of the hypocrisies that exist within Memorial Day. And so when I speak about the hypocrisies that exist within Memorial Day, that is speaking more broadly about the hypocrisies that exist within uh, the Army and the military and the Navy and uh, historically because black people that have joined the army, who have joined the military, who have joined the Navy, have had experiences that have had experiences that were negative when they came back to this country, that they have been discriminated against still when they came back to this country, that they have had oppression and exploitation heaped upon them, even after risking their lives in this uh, for this country uh in in wars and in battles and they've had generations of their families deal with the same things they've went and fought in other countries for the freedoms and for the liberties of 
for the, supposedly for the freedoms and liberties of people in other countries and in other worlds across the globe, while their families and themselves don't have those same equal liberties and freedoms here in this country. And I think that's something that is not spoken about quite often enough. And the I just think that it was something I wanted to to bring to the forefront as we read through the experience of specifically of uh, uh, McDaniels, of Hattie McDaniels and what her father went through. And I also think that I would say this as well. I know that Melissa V. Harris Perry, I'm not sure that she ever said whether what her specific view was on uh, the senator that we read about. I want to get this, get the names right. It's no, no use of being lazy and not looking up the names. Stephanie Tubbs Jones. She never really said what her stance was on, uh, on Stephanie Tubbs Jones being called what she was called. Uh, and I think that, I, I do think that as myself, somebody, I won't be, I'll be transparent as myself, somebody who has referred to people as uncle Tom's, who have referred to people as coons, referred to people as sellouts. Uh, I have done those with the, belief that uh, a person's actions can dictate those things being coined and termed to them. That when people are doing things that are historically known to continue oppression and perpetuate exploitation and perpetuate these cycles that we go through as black people, that this far down the line with this much information that they buy into some of those systems or buy into some of those policies or procedures, that they should be called to the forefront for what those, for, for those actions because of the fact that if it was a movie or a TV show or uh, some type of form of entertainment and that type of caricature was being portrayed, that is how it would come off. And in here, when she talked about sex in the city and the way that those characters came off uh, and and spoke about the the way that they came off through a perpetuation, per, perpetuating of a stereotype, uh, I agree with that as well. Uh, and I just think that, and of course, I know that the concept of name calling, which is what people would deem those terms to be is something that is controversial. I feel like it's a, a political term, is, uh, but I also believe that I, that's not a hill that I'm willing to die on. I'm, if we can, if we as a people can get to a place where there's a some sort of a compromise where the people who are doing these type of things that would fall into these categories of being coons or sellouts or Uncle Toms are willing to take a, 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 a honest look at how their decision making affects black people in masses. I think that it's also something that's fair for uh, myself and other black people in mass who may use those terms to take that same moment to reflect on uh, the usage of those terms and uh, the things that those terms perpetuate. So I think this was a good episode, a very important reflective episode. And I would like for you to share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Be on the lookout for tomorrow's episode of Rafa Reading Daily. Uh, remember, we put these out with the purpose of providing people the opportunity to begin or further on their journey in the struggle to end police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. All right, talk to you tomorrow.